Please turn with me in your Bibles back to Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. We've taken a brief detour from <clears throat> the text in Daniel, but it's not totally unrelated uh, because in Daniel 10:13 we read, "But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days." The prince of the kingdom of Persia was a spiritual enemy, was a demonic enemy, withstood Gabriel the angel, in this holy battle, uh, angelic battle, uh, with the forces of evil. And also Michael, one of the chief princes, was also called to assist and to help uh, Gabriel. And I remain there with the kings of Persia, we read in verse 13. And in likewise in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, we're reminded, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the cunning devices, the plots, the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so we have taken, as I said, a, a brief detour. We will return to our text in Daniel. But I think that it is important to continue with where we have begun to seek to understand uh, and to know our spiritual enemy, to know our enemy's tactics, and to know the blessed and mighty resources that God has given unto us to be able to battle and to win the battle against the enemy. Our Reformed forefathers uh, condemned the Roman Catholic rite of exorcism for using unbiblical paraphernalia like crucifixes, holy water, incense, rosary beads, and offering prayers to Mary, to the angels, and to the martyrs for their intercession and help in delivering one demon-possessed. However, the reformers replaced those unbiblical forms of exorcism with repentance for sin, faith in Jesus Christ alone, declaring God's powerful and mighty word and prayer and fasting through the almighty name of the Lord Jesus, who has already conquered all his and our enemies. Actually, I think I've noted this in past sermons, but our Reformed forefathers emphasized more, as does the scripture itself, Satan's role in tempting and deceiving and in misleading and in influencing people to follow 
their own evil desires, to follow the attractions of this world rather than the will of God. Satan actually, I believe, is more successful in hiding in the background by way of his temptations than in publicly exposing himself by way of demonic possession even or by way of all manner of public depravity that we see. I believe that he is much more successful when he conceals his identity and works behind uh, the scenes, as it were, rather than displaying his, his power to, to change hearts and lives in a very public way for all the world to see. But we as Christians grow so weary at times over the continuous battle we have with temptations that we face in this spiritual battle that rages within us and around us. Let's understand that such a battle between our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil on the one side, and the Holy Spirit and those holy affections which God has already worked within us, on the other side, that battle is evidence that we are Christians. That battle within is actually uh, an evidence that we are belong to Jesus Christ. Like in Romans chapter 7, that battle Paul talks about between the, the flesh and the spirit within him, going back and forth so that what he wants to do, he doesn't do. And what he doesn't want to do, he does. That battle within is really an evidence to us that there's life within us. That's why there's a battle that is raging within us. It's an evidence of life because if there was no life and it was only death, there would be no battle. We would just succumb. We would just follow very cheerfully those evil and wicked desires, but because there is a battle, that ought to at least encourage, not that we rejoice in the battle, not because it brings us great delight and joy that, that we have to go through this, but, but the fact that God is using that battle within us to evidence his life within us as well as to evidence that he is going to strengthen us. He is showing our weaknesses in the midst of that battle so that we can turn unto him, so that we can follow him, so we can rely upon him all the more as our weaknesses are revealed. We've already considered uh, in this brief detour, know your spiritual enemy. We began last Lord's Day considering know your spiritual enemies tactics, and we will continue that point this Lord's Day and uh, next Lord's Day. And the final point, which we will soon reach, is know the resources that God has given to you to overcome your spiritual enemy. I want to assure you uh, that uh, I am preaching uh, these sermons for my soul as well as yours. Uh, this is not simply a, uh, a perfect or sinless minister preaching to sinners. This is a, a minister preaching to all of us 
who need Jesus Christ more and more evident in our life to understand the enemy that each of us faces. And so if any of us are saying, uh, as we hear the sermons preached, boy, I hope that person was really listening to the sermon today. I hope this person or that person was really listening to that point. It's probably that the Lord wants to say something to us, if that's our attitude, more so than to that person that we're thinking about, that God needs to minister to us. And so let's begin or continue with know your spiritual enemy's tactics. There are really two general categories of Satan's temptations that we will consider today. First, uh, Satan tempts us to sin against God's revealed will in Scripture. Uh, In a more proactive way, he places suggestions, influences to violate what we know to be contrary to God's will. And secondly, he tempts us to ignore, to neglect, uh, to procrastinate, to be lazy about using God's resources to overcome sin. Uh, Again, the first might seem far worse, you know, where he's actually tempting us to, to do something that's clearly contrary to God's will. But that's, again, I I believe if that's our attitude and the way we view it, then we uh, are really setting ourselves up to continue to violate God's will because if we don't see Satan's work in seeking to keep us away from the remedy to overcoming those sins, then he's accomplished the same thing. The devil tempts us either to say, no to God's holy precepts, or he tempts us to say, not now, Lord, maybe a little bit later. However, when we say, not now, Lord, maybe a little bit later, we're actually saying, whether we realize it or not, we're actually saying, no, Lord. We're saying, no. Satan would have us to think that procrastination, neglect, of using those means God has given to us. That procrastination is not saying no, when in reality, it is saying no. You remember the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, where the father told the first son, go out into the vineyard and till the vineyard, gather the grapes, work in the vineyard, And the son uh, said, uh, uh, no, I'm not going. But later on, he reconsidered and went. And then the next son uh, said to the father, yes, I'll go. But he didn't go. He procrastinated. He waited until, again, uh, there was no desire to go. And the Lord Jesus asked those who are listening to him, which of the two sons did the will of God? And they rightly responded, the one who said no, but he went. Not the one, not the one who said no, uh, or said I will go, 
but didn't end up going. Procrastinated, had other things that uh, detoured, uh, deflected that from him obeying God. That's the one who did not do the will of God. And again, Satan works that way as well. We need to understand that. So let's first look at, out of this uh, general category of Satan's temptations, these two categories, let's look at the first one. First, the devil sets temptations before our minds or before our eyes, before our ears, in order to entice us to think, to desire, to believe, to speak, to hear, or practice what is contrary uh, to his holy will revealed in Scripture. Let's consider eight examples of this first general category of the devil tempting and enticing us to disobey God's holy word. Now, this is not an exhaustive uh, list. We could add many, many uh, more examples, but it is, I hope, a representative list that you can benefit from, and you can then take, and you can apply further uh, to your own life, and that I can apply further to my own life. So the first temptation under this first category, Satan comes and says something like, uh, well, do what you want to do. That's what's going to bring you pleasure. That's what's going to bring you fulfillment. That's what's going to bring you satisfaction. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. In fact, Satan will tempt us by saying, no one has a right to trample upon what will make you happy. Not even God has that right Satan will tempt you with. Others are doing what they want to do, and look how happy they are. Look how much joy they seem to have in this world. And so, in this temptation, this first example, the focus in this temptation is all about us, isn't it? It's all about us. And our immediate gratification. You see, that's the kind of temptation that led Eve astray. You will be like God. Simply take this fruit that God has forbidden. You'll be like God. You'll have immediate gratification and satisfaction and fulfillment if you simply take the fruit and do what you want to do, not what God has commanded you to do. We must be aware, dear ones, when decisions we make are all about us and our dreams and our fulfillment rather than about our service and love for Jesus Christ and for one another. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we cannot do something to God's glory, 
because it's so much about us. That should stop us. That should halt us. And we should say, why am I doing what I'm doing? If I cannot do it and glorify God in doing it, why am I doing it at all? Dear ones, remember that the sins of others and their claim to happiness from committing these sins, it only is a brief short-term happiness. It may be a happiness, yes, but it is very temporary until they reap the consequences for that brief time of happiness. And the consequences will come. They will come. You see, that's a snare. That's a trap that is set for us. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul says, but they that will be rich, that is those who make it basically their life's desire, I want to be rich above everything else. That's what I want to be, is rich. The love of money. The pursuit of money for the sake of money. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The time is coming for those who seek happiness in the sins that they willfully commit. Next uh, example of temptation from this first category where Satan goes forth to, to tempt us to violate God's holy word. Satan comes like this. Test the boundaries and see how close you can get to sin without falling into the actual sin. It will be fun. You'll be able to pull back at the last moment before you outwardly commit the sin. But uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22, warns us, not just uh, young people, but we who are adults and who are older, all of us warns us, flee youthful lusts. Don't see how close you can get falling over the cliff. That's a temptation of the enemy. Whenever we test the boundaries, what we know is contrary to God's will, and we flirt with it, we sport with it, try to have fun with just getting as close as we can, we have already, in our desires, in our desires, in the inward man, we've already been set up to fall into that outward sin. And most often, most often, you will know in your life, as I know in my life, we have warning signals. As Christians, we have warning signals going off from God's Spirit within us that this temptation is stirring up desires that we know that are contrary to God's will. Seeing how close we can get, ignoring those warning signals, seeing how close we can get to the cliff before falling over the cliff is again Satan's way of moving us ever closer and closer and closer to the cliff rather than fleeing from it. 
a third example of the way Satan tempts us to, to sin and to violate God's holy word. It comes something like this. Well, you don't want to look weird. You don't want to look excluded. Or you don't want to be excluded from family, from friends and co-workers by following Christ and his word. Don't you want to be accepted? Don't you want to be included? Why would you isolate yourself then from the world? Follow the world. Dress in modesty, modestly like the world. Watch what the world watches. Listen to the music that takes your heart away from the Lord. And talk trash like the world talks. These are the temptations that we face, that the enemy brings. The psalmist says in Psalm 101, verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. When we allow, again, that which is wicked on the computer screen, and it doesn't have to be that we are going to porn sites, that obviously is clearly crossing over the line, but we can be going to news sites, and in many news sites, uh, there are immodestly dressed people. And that can be tempting as well. Do we feast our eyes upon that? Because that, likewise, is not going to help us to stay away from those thoughts that lead us from Christ. And so, again, we, we think it's safe, simply because it's not a porn site. That's not true. We have to be careful whatever site on the computer we visit, lest we be, be drawn away in our heart, our affections, uh, to, and that can, again, set us up by way of desires uh, to go to the next step once those are fueled in our hearts. As far as our speech and trying to fit in uh, with coworkers uh, who trash talk, uh, who use God's name in vain, whatever it may be, uh, Ephesians 4, 29 through 30, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers and grieve not the Holy Spirit Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. We may think, well, I'm not using God's name in vain. I'm not breaking the third commandment. I'm not blaspheming God, so it must be okay for me to trash talk to, in order to fit in with, with uh, others. But again, God says, if it's not beneficial, if it's not edifying, then we ought not to be using it. You see, peer pressure... And not wanting to be different from those around us is a great temptation of the enemy, especially to the young, to the young people, but not only to the young people. 
to us as well who are older. You see, dear ones, we are either being conformed to the world or we're being conformed to Jesus Christ. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. Are we being conformed to Christ? Because if we're not, we're not feasting upon Christ, if we are not communing with Christ, if we are not filling our minds with his word, if we're not meditating, if we're not enjoying him, delighting in him daily, we will find that we are being conformed to the world's standards all around us, the culture around us. And we may not leap immediately into the deepest and most corrupt types of things, but it is just like sanctification is a process and moving and being conformed to Christ. So being conformed to the world doesn't happen necessarily in one move. It's gradual, moving us ever so closer and closer to the world and its standards. The fourth temptation, I have eight of these uh, before moving to the second major category of temptation. But So this is the fourth temptation of the enemy. Uh, don't worry about your sin. It's just a little sin com- uh, in comparison to that other person's sin. What that other person did, wow, now that is a big, that's huge. But my sins are little in comparison. At least the temptation comes, you're not as bad as that person. Well, let's beware. Let's beware of Satan's temptation to justify our sins by comparing us and our sins to others whom we deem to be far worse sinners than ourselves. Let us be ever so careful when we begin to compare ourselves with others in that way. We are simply exuding self-righteousness in our lives. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Anytime we begin to compare ourselves uh, with others, again, we are setting ourselves up by way of a false standard. The standard isn't somebody else. The standard is God's word. The standard is Christ. That's the standard. When we... When we do so, we end up justifying our sins. Uh, Arrogance, pride, rather than humility, occurs. When in fact, again, the fruit of the Spirit is humility and acknowledging our sins. Because, not because we don't measure up the standards of others, but because we don't measure up the standards of God his holy law, and his commandments. That ought to, again, have the force of humbling us before him. David, who fell and sinned grievously, 
says in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, dear ones, sins that we minimize by way of comparing to the sins of others are often the most ensnaring kinds of sins. Why? Because we're justifying our sin. They inevitably lead to more aggravated sins because we do not take the so-called smaller sins seriously. Fifthly, fifth temptation is this. Your sin is not your fault. It's really their fault. They're the ones who made you angry. They're the ones who made you lose control because of the way they treated you or spoke to you or he or she treated you or spoke to you. And again, this is a matter of shifting blame to others for our own sinful response. True, that person may have sinned against us, but we are still responsible before God as to how we ought to respond, even when we're mistreated, even when we are not treated the way that God would have them to treat us. Nevertheless, we're responsible for our own sin. That's a ploy of the enemy to lead us away from the Lord, again, in justifying our sin. Remember, that's what Adam did when he fell. He says to God, The woman thou gavest to be with me. She's the one who's responsible, not me. There was the more that we justify our, our, our sin by blaming others, the more we become hardened by that sin rather than being humbled by that sin and fleeing to our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember, we are responsible for our responses to even injury and ill treatment that we suffer. We're responsible for the way we suffer. Jesus says in such cases that we are to bless and to pray for those who curse us. The devil may have tempted us, but he did not make us do it. Neither did anyone else make us do it. We're responsible for our own sin. A sixth temptation is this. Go ahead and commit that sin because you can easily repent and seek God's forgiveness afterward. It's easier, Satan will tempt us with, it's easier to repent of sin than to resist sin. So simply stop resisting the sin, fall into the sin because you can easily repent and seek God's forgiveness afterwards. Dear ones, it is surely true that if we repent, God will forgive us 70 times 7, if that's what 
Jesus said we are to do with one another. That's a lot of uh, uh, forgiveness. That's a lot of repenting in the, in the same day. 70 times 7 times. How do we know that the person who does that that many times is truly repentant? Again, Jesus just says, if they come and they repent, forgive them. Forgive them. Well, if that's what he calls us to do, how much more he is willing to forgive us when we come to him 70 times 7 and repent of the sin and seek his forgiveness for the sin that we have committed. At least he knows our heart. We don't know the heart of one another. However, let us beware that when we justify falling into sin because we say, well, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. We're not going to escape the consequences of our sin for the Lord will lovingly discipline us and will teach us that we cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. That's what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 1 through 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Dear ones, we don't know. When we have that attitude, God will forgive. Therefore, I'll just, that's the easier route, is simply not to resist, just to give in to the sin, because God will forgive. We have no idea where that sin will lead us. It's a very, very dangerous road that we are putting ourselves upon to take that attitude. Seventh, here's the temptation. When you are struggling with a besetting sin, don't seek out the help of a faithful pastor or a faithful elder, faithful deacon, or a mature Christian. Seek out, rather, the help of someone who will agree with you. Minimize and justify your sin. Not someone who will take you to Jesus Christ, to his death, to his resurrection, to his commandments, to his promises. The temptation comes. All you need, really, is sympathy. Not the truth. Just sympathy. Just someone to feel sorry with you and for you and what you're going through. That's all that's important. Now, I don't want to minimize sympathy at all. Sympathy is a grace that God truly gives to us. Sympathy means that we suffer with people, quite literally, to suffer with. That when others are going through pain and sorrow, through temptation, that we come alongside, rather than casting them out, we come alongside because we know ourselves how devastating temptation is in our own lives. And we suffer with them. We pray with them. We uphold them and strengthen them in what they're going through. We need sympathy. But we do not need, dear ones, to have people simply agree with us. 
in what we are going through. Simply to, to say, you know, poor so-and-so, and yet not bring us to Christ, to not bring us to his mercy, his love, his commandments, his holiness. We need that kind of a counselor and friend. That's a true friend who sympathizes with us but doesn't leave us simply in that state of feeling sorry for us and telling us what we want to hear. We need someone. We need counselors around us who are going to tell us what Jesus wants us to hear and who will suffer with us in the midst of those trials. And we have such a sympathetic high priest in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 2.18, we read, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He's able to come to our aid and our help. He knows what it is to be tempted. If we know what it is to be tempted as sinners, we, again, because of our sin, we do not even see all the temptation that comes our way. We do not recognize it because we're sinners. Jesus was perfect and sinless and holy. Every possible temptation to sin on his part was something uh, huge that he endured as a human being. He knows. He's one of us. He will come and he will stand with you, dear ones, in the midst of temptation. As many times as we fall into temptation, dear ones, he ever remains sympathetic as we flee to his mercy. His arms are always open to us to welcome us. And that's how we should relate to one another, not with folded arms, but with open arms. That's what Jesus does with us. Even when we have blown it, even when we have sinned against him, 70 times 7 times in the course of the day. Eighthly, finally, this is the last example. Again, as I said, you can add many, many others, but I want to move on to the second major category. The eighth is this temptation. It's not wrong for you to be resentful when you have been abused and mistreated you have a right to despise that person who hates you and mistreats you. You see, that's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's the world's view of justice. Treat them as they've treated you, but that's not, that's not what Jesus has given to us at all. We have no such right from God Rather, to the contrary, in Romans 12, Paul says that we have a right to return good for the evil done to us. That's our right. That's our duty, is to return good for the evil done to us. 
That again does not mean that there are not the proper courses of justice to deal with, with uh, uh, crimes that have been committed, but it's saying as far as our own personal personal uh, vengeance, personal wrath, personal bitterness, despising others, that we don't have a right to. I submit to you that in so doing, we only hurt ourselves. We think that that's going to hurt the other party. No. Who it really hurts is us, not the other party. Who it really eats up is us and consumes is us, not the other party. The second major category of temptation is this. The devil tempts us to ignore and to procrastinate using God's resources to overcome sin, whether it be the word, whether it be prayer, whether it be communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ, whether it be the ministry or the eldership, whether it be Christian fellowship. Satan tempts us to be lazy and to procrastinate, to neglect and ignore those means of grace in our lives. So the temptations, and I only have three here uh, uh, for this particular second major category of temptation. So three examples, but I think you'll get the idea. First temptation is this, don't worry about daily prayer, reading of scripture, memorization of scripture, communion with Jesus Christ. That's just legalism. You're under grace, you're not under law. Such structure in your life drains the life out of you. You're too busy with so many other responsibilities. You don't have to make that kind of time for worship with God every day. Dear ones, though that's the temptation, the truth is quite to the contrary, our life, dear ones, our life is our union and our communion with Jesus Christ. The very means of fighting the good fight of faith is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's not legalism to daily commune with Jesus Christ. It's grace. It's joy. It's delight. It's what makes our life worth living to spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ every day. It's heaven upon earth for the Christian spending time with Christ. That is what Jesus meant when he says that he came to give life and to give it more abundantly. In John 10.10. 10. And I submit to you, Jerons, we become prime targets of the enemy because we are not communing with Jesus Christ daily. 
And the same is true with regard to daily family worship. The enemy will attack our families. We are not fellowshipping, communing with Christ as a family. And it's true of Lord's Day worship as well. Those are the ways that the Lord has given to us to commune with him. The second example of temptation in which the devil seeks to hinder us from availing ourselves of the means of grace is this. Worship should make us feel good about ourselves. If it isn't doing so, if worship is not making you feel good about yourself, then just, you know, just put it off for a while. Just stop for a while. That's the temptation. You see, God warns us to be ever so careful that we don't attend to God's word, whether privately or publicly, in order to have our ears tickled or to have ministers tell us or counselors tell us what we want to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, Paul says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. How many, again, in churches all the time, or in private worship or family worship, because they don't walk away feeling good about themselves, the Lord, again, is telling us that's not what worship is all about, walking away and feeling good about yourself. Worship is about ascribing worth to the living God. If that's not where our worship begins, we're not going to be built up. We're not going to find joy. We're not going to be edified if we do not first begin in worship, in communion with him, acknowledging, honoring, exalting him, lifting him up. In Jeremiah 5.31, the Lord tells Jeremiah, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means. Not by God's means, but by their means. And my people love to have it so. They want it that way. We can, again, and we should, certainly uh, point out and expose the charlatans, the phonies, the fakes, that are leading people astray. But how many of those people want to be led astray? How many of those people want to hear the message that is coming from those false teachers? They want it. And so they follow it. Worship, dear ones, remember, is God-centered, not man-centered. Worship is not about 
pleasing us. It's about pleasing God. It's regulated by his revealed will in Scripture, not by what makes us feel good about ourselves. If we worship in spirit and in truth, communing with Christ, we will walk away not feeling good about ourselves, but feeling good about Christ loving us, caring for us, Christ's kindness for us, his compassion for us. He will be exalted. True worship is both inward, in the heart, a heart of faith and love to the Lord, and it's outward in obedience to what God has given to us, following his commandments outwardly in the forms that we use, the means that we use in worshiping God. When we put the Lord first in worshiping him as he prescribes, that is, in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24, then the Holy Spirit builds us up and he grows us in Christ and he gives us a joy and a delight in our hearts and a hope in whatever we face. The third and last temptation under the second category of how the enemy tempts us to ignore, neglect, procrastinate using uh, the means of grace is this temptation. You cannot come to Christ because of your sin, because you have fallen again and again into the same temptation of sin. Don't waste your time. Jesus is holy and you have sinned away his mercy. That's a lie. Just to keep us away from the only one who can truly help us, Jesus Christ. It's a lie to keep us away from him who has overcome temptation and sin for us. The only one who can give us faith in him and hope in his promises that we are not forsaken, that we are not doomed to jump wherever Satan and whenever Satan flashes that temptation before us is the fact that Jesus receives us. He receives us because we are sinners, because we acknowledge that we are sinners, because we acknowledge we need him. He doesn't shove us away because we're sinners. He invites us to come to him because we are sinners. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. Because you're a sinner, you don't have a place. In the presence of God, you don't have a place in coming to Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is absolutely holy. But dear ones, that holy Jesus has come to save us from our sin. That holy Jesus has come to purify us, to sanctify us, to grow us in his holiness, to conform us to his image. And that's fully accomplished 
when we are glorified at death and at the resurrection, we will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. We are being conformed now, but we will be fully conformed then. That's, that's our hope. With all of our struggles, we are looking to that hope in Jesus Christ. The very qualification for our coming to Christ is because Jesus says he came to call sinners to himself. Not perfected saints to himself, but sinners to himself. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, in your sin, with these burdens of sin, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will take those burdens of sin off of you. I will bear them myself. Paul's struggles with his sinful flesh, his evil desires within, which we see in Romans chapter 7, it did not deny him access to the power of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. To the contrary, he says in verses 24 and 25 of that chapter, O wretched man that I am, he recognizes he recognizes that he's a sinner, but that's why he needs Christ. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In spite of all those struggles, in doing what he doesn't want to do and what he doesn't want to do, doing, thank God through Jesus Christ, because Jesus receives Paul. In that conflict and in that battle with sin, Jesus receives the Apostle Paul. You see, to the contrary, Paul's sinful weaknesses did not drive him away from Christ. It drove him to Jesus Christ. Satan wants us only to look, dear ones, at our sin as keeping us away from Jesus Christ. How many times in prayer or in just daily living does the enemy continue, continue to continue to drive us to consider our sin, our sin, our sin, and not to consider Christ, not to look to Christ from our sin, not to confess our sins so that we can flee to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, but simply to focus upon our sin by way of condemnation. And I'll, next Lord's Day, be um, focusing upon the temptations of the enemy as it relates to the assurance of faith and salvation and the way the enemy tempts us away from that assurance, that blessed grace that God gives to his people to be assured but he the enemy is ever at work uh, to seek to cause us to focus only upon our sin we do need to look at our sin but we don't live by way of focusing upon that sin we see the sin we go to Christ we flee to Christ because the sin drives us to Christ 
And then, by God's grace, we rejoice that he receives us, he accepts us, he loves us. I believe there may not be a greater device that Satan uses in our lives to stunt our growth and our walk with Christ and to send us away in hopelessness and despair than to lie to us that our sin, our sin will keep us from coming to the Lord Jesus for his mercy if we flee to him for his mercy. I'm reminded of what is said in Deuteronomy 4.31, what Moses reveals about the Lord. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. He'll not forget that covenant he's made with you, his people. Therefore, as I conclude, let's not, let's not be slow to turn to Christ after we have sinned. And we know we've sinned against him. Let's not be slow. Let's not procrastinate. Let's not neglect fleeing to Christ. Ignore it. That's the trick of the enemy to do so, but rather let us be quick to do so when we fall, even if we've fallen countless times into the same sin. Every time we fall into that sin, let us be all the more quick to flee to Christ for his mercy. Proverbs 24, 16 talks about the righteous man who falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked falls to his own mischief. You see, dear ones, it's when we are slow to come to Jesus that we are all the more tempted and attacked that we become so vulnerable before the enemy. The longer delay that we make, when we know we've sinned, we've violated God's commandments, and we delay, we ignore the means of grace, the 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 work of the Holy Spirit within us, calling us to the Lord Jesus, to come to him, the more vulnerable we become, the longer we wait. And that's what Satan wants. That's playing right into his game. And when you come to Jesus, know this, when you come to Jesus, fleeing to him for his mercy, understand, he sings. He rejoices over you with singing and gladness. That's how he receives you. In Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I want to hear the Lord singing, rejoicing over me. I'm not going to hear it as I am fleeing from Christ, but as I flee to him, I'm going to, by his grace, know that he is rejoicing 
in my coming to him, as I flee to him. God grant us his grace as we face these many different temptations from the enemy. As I said, next Lord's Day we'll continue one more um, section of Satan's tactics that he uses as it relates particularly to the assurance of salvation and how Satan seeks to cause us to doubt, to disbelieve the work of God, the work of Christ on our behalf. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, have mercy upon us, for we, our Lord, are indeed sinners who need the every moment of the day. How we thank thee for thy love and thy tender mercies, for thy spirit that does assure us that we are the children of God. How we praise thee that thou dost lovingly instruct us, patiently instruct us, gently instruct us, rather than harshly Lord, we thank Thee that even in what may be more harsh discipline, it comes because, and Thou dost assure us because Thou dost love us. Not that Thou dost despise us, not that Thou dost seek to crush us and to destroy us, but because Thou dost love us. Father, by means of understanding how the enemy works, Lord, may we be equipped. May we be armed to be able to recognize these temptations so that we may flee all the more to Christ, that we may be armed and able to recognize these subtle and sometimes very loud temptations that come our way. Not only temptations to to do what we know to be contrary to God's will, but also simply to temptations to keep us away from thee and away from the means of grace that we so desperately need at those times. Thank thee, our God, for this time that thou hast given to us. May we walk in love and obedience to thee. May we walk in love, practicing the way that thou dost treat us. May we walk in love toward one another. In Jesus' name, amen.